Welcome to the introductory podcast of Brotherhood of the Silver Screen. My name is Luke, and this podcast is dedicated to honoring the Lord in our conversations about movies. Uh, everyone on this podcast is a huge movie buff. We love talking about movies, and uh, more importantly, we are Christians. We believe in the Word of God, and we apply it to all areas of life, uh, especially movies, when we talk about them. And in this podcast, we, um, we desire to bring an entertaining approach to movies that, um, that is Christian and uh, is, uh, frankly, interesting to the listeners. And, uh, you know, we like to have a lot of fun on this podcast. We're loud. We talk a lot. And um, I just want to start this uh, introductory podcast with a description of an archetypal hero um, you know, when we talk about movies, you know, at the center of, you know, every good movie, we have a hero, somebody like the main character, you know, or uh, perhaps a, a slew of, of heroes, several uh, main characters that you follow throughout a movie. And um, for this podcast, I just want to draw your attention to the fact that Western, the Western idea of a hero is based on Christ. And um, a lot of these observations were made by my dad, but I, I, I pulled them together to hear into a presentation. And the, the observations are based off a book called The Writer's Journey, written by a guy named uh, Christopher Vogler. His book was based off a book called The Hero's Journey, or The Hero of a Thousand Faces, uh, which is written by a guy named Joseph Campbell. This is like uh, a structure of what a hero undergoes to become t- the hero. You know, this is a typical structure of his from his start to his finish, what it looks like, the things, the stages that he goes through, uh, or she, uh, in their journey um, of becoming a hero and ultimately defeating evil or, you know, becoming a better person or, you know, what have you. Now, I want to I wanna start by saying that when you look at uh, a, a lot of, there are a lot of heroes in culture, um, but in, in his book, The Writer's Journey, that um, Vogler kind of categorizes, um, he puts the hero into 12 different stages. And I'm here to argue that I don't think anybody in history um, uh, fits these categories like Christ. I think they're all subconsciously based off Christ. Our culture is so influenced by Christianity. Uh, we date everything through Christ, right? Uh, we're so influenced by Christianity. We don't know how much, though, uh, but you, you, you kind of start to get an idea of how much we are influenced by Christianity when you look, uh, compare our idea of a hero with the life of Jesus Christ. Now, there are some people, I believe, in cinema or in stories that exemplify, you know, these points um, but I think the first person in history to really exemplify these points uh, is Jesus Christ. And I think that there are many other heroes in history before Christ who exemplified some of them, but not all of them. You know, I mean, and, and you know, you look at some of the ancient uh, heroes in, 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 in antiquity, and, you know, they're often plagued by, you know, being terrible people, making foolish and stupid decisions— Selfishness is a huge uh, factor in a lot of these heroes, um, and anger and rage. And you know, while some of them fit the descriptions of the twelve stages of a hero, 
I don't think any of them fits all of them. Unless you look at a modern day retelling of that story, then then you start to get into like, okay, they, they fit these things. But that's because we whitewash everything through the story of Christ. Um, well, I mean, we have anyway. We're starting to get away from that. We're starting to get away with, you know, heroes with identity problems, heroes that have no purpose, uh, heroes that are actually the bad guys, you know, giving justice to the good guys, you know, but, you know, to, you know for example, um, Nightcrawler, pretty good example of telling a story through the eyes of the bad guy. And as you're watching, you kind of want the bad guy to succeed. You're going to see more of this, um, and you're going to see more um, purposeless in the heroes of like what's this all about why even try uh, you know there's several movies that I've seen that we just come away from the movie saying that was pointless what was the point of that you know there's a lot of these artsy fartsy films out there um, you know they don't exemplify a hero and that's and that's the point of them they, they uh, you know if, if you're into that you know then you're into that but you know a lot of these films are meant to attack the idea of a hero to to get away from the stereotype of what a hero is um, and, and the 12 stages of a hero, uh, which I'm about to go through here with you, um, is the archetypical type of, of hero that a lot of these people are trying to erase. And, and I'm here to argue that they hate the idea of a hero because it's, it's based on Christ. I, I can't think of, a, of any better explana- explanation. People who hate Christ hate everything about him, and they, they hate anything that even remotely resembles him. Hollywood, of course, hates Christ. So we're obviously going to move away from this idea of what a hero is and into ideas of what a hero is not and celebrate, you know, people who don't exemplify heroism. All right, so let's get started on the 12 stages of a hero. First off, there's a couple different descriptions uh, what, what kind of what kind of hero are we talking about? Are we talking about an anti-hero. An anti-hero, according to Vogler, um, is a specialized kind of hero, one who may be an outlaw or a villain from the point of view of society, but with whom the audience is basically in sympathy. Here's Christ, an example of an anti-hero. He fits a lot of these descriptions. Um, and the Bible says, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for, uh, for them uh, Barnabas instead, and Pilate again said to them. Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. An example of, he might be an outlaw or villain from the point of view of society, but with whom, but uh, someone with whom the audience is basically in sympathy. If you read that story of Pilate releasing Barnabas, uh, Barnabas was a murderer and all Christ did was you know, essentially nothing. A lot of false accusations against him. They accused him of blasphemy. That was his biggest uh, uh, crime, if you will, um, which was a, was which was uh, a false accusation. And if you if you read the story where Pilate says, "Do you want me to release Jesus, or do you want me to release Barnabas?" and they said, "Release Barnabas. We'd rather have him than than this this Christ person." I believe many ways that Christ was. Uh, societal outcast. I think a lot of people didn't understand him. His own parents at times didn't understand him. Um, it is true that he did grow in favor uh, with with God and man as he grew up. But you know, as he got older and he started to you know make waves um, and really go against the root of the wickedness in that society, namely the uh, the Pharisees, uh, then. The, the wickedness that that society loved ultimately turned against him, and then he became an anti-hero. Next, we have uh, group-oriented heroes. 
Um, they are part of a society, excuse me, they are part of a society at the beginning of the story and their journey takes them to an unknown land far from home. When we first meet them, they are part of a clan, tribe, village, town, or family. Their story is one of separation from that group. A lone adventure in the wilderness away from the group and usually eventually reintegration with the group. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, for, for many Christians, I mean, they identify right away what scene, um, uh, what scenes you can think of of Christ, you know, wandering away from the group and then coming back into the group. This is a common, this is a common theme in his ministry. Uh, in the book of John, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In, his, in him was life, and the life, in, and the life was the light of men. So, and then... Um, Later it says, then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them while he blessed them. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. So you have this group-oriented hero who starts off with God and then he leaves, he separates from that group, a lone adventure in the wilderness away from uh, the group, uh, I mean, uh, arguably from God and from the Holy Spirit, and usually eventual reintegration with the group, the ascension back into heaven. Now that's just one one aspect you could look at. Also... And you see this many times as, you know, Christ um, dies and is resurrected. He leaves uh, the disciples. Everyone abandons him. He leaves his group. And then he gets, eventually when he's resurrected, he, he rejoins the group again. And he appears to over 500 uh, people um, and, you know, kind of reintegrates himself back into the group again, sets up the 12 disciples again or gathers them again, if you will, and spends time with them. You know, this is, um, this is a common thing. I mean, let alone the uh, temptation in the wilderness. Next type of hero, we have the loner hero. With this type hero type, the story begins with a hero estranged from society. Their natural habitat is a wilderness. Their natural state is solitude. Their journey is one of re-entry into the group, adventure with the group on the group's normal turf, and then return to isolation in the wilderness. Here we go. We have also example uh, examples of Christ being a loner type of hero. He was in the world, and the world, uh, excuse me, the Bible says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's classic loner hero stereotype right there. Next, we have a catalyst hero. A certain class of hero is an exception to the rule that the hero is usually the character who undergoes the most change. These are catalyst heroes, central figures who may act heroically, but who do not change much themselves because their main function is to bring about transformation in others. Like a true catalyst in chemistry, they bring about a change in the system without being changed themselves. Again, people familiar with the story of Christ know this is a Christ to a T. Um, this is exactly what he did. In the book of Psalms, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now, again, this is a type of catalyst hero, somebody coming into an area and drastically, radically changing everything around him, but himself is not changed much. This is Christ, the catalyst hero. Now let's continue on into the 12 stages of a hero's journey. Number one is the ordinary world. 
Vogler writes, because so many stories are journeys that take heroes and audiences to special worlds, most begin by establishing an ordinary world as a baseline for comparison. The special world of the story is only special if we can see it in contrast to a mundane world of everyday affairs from which the hero issues forth. The ordinary world is the context, home base, and background of the hero. The Bible establishes an ordinary world. Uh, It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. This is a very ordinary world. Uh, uh, you know, n- nothing really supernatural going on um, in, you know, in that description, that particular description. As you read on, you find out that was a very actual uh, supernatural occurrence. Um, but, you know, establishing uh, uh, ordinary circumstances, you know, I, I don't think uh, Christ, you know, uh, one of the things about Christ and uh, being humble as he was, did not come into the world with, uh, trumpets blaring and letting the you know all the important people know those grand jury actually came in with um, uh, angels appearing to some of the lowliest men and kind of sending a secret message to the truly wise men uh, but also coming in very humble circumstances he wasn't born in a palace he wasn't born to riches he was born um, in a cattle shed you know uh, uh, on a manger uh, uh, for a cradle Number two is the call to adventure. The ordinary world of most heroes is static, but unstable. Uh, is a static but unstable condition. The seeds of change and growth are planted, and it takes only a little new energy to germinate them. That new energy is what is termed the call to adventure. Various theories of screenwriting acknowledge call to adventure by other names such as the inciting or initiating incident, the catalyst, or the trigger. All agree that some events. Uh, so I'll agree that some event is necessary to get a story rolling once the work of introducing the main character is done. Now, this is, again, the the, the call to adventure um, is described in the Bible when it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the, Jor- uh, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for uh, us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You know, there's a lot of calls to adventures in movies that we see. For example, you know, Harry Potter, you know, when um, Hagrid comes to get him and says, Yo, you're a wizard. I'm a what? You know, and, you know, many, many calls to adventures that we see. It's a very common um, a, a very common step in a hero's journey. But again, this is exemplified perfectly in Christ when he gets baptized and the initiation of his ministry um, occurs and we have a big booming voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bam. Number three is the refusal of the call. This is to demonstrate the humility of the uh, hero. Now, a lot of people have different names for this. Um, some people uh, call it, uh, 
you know, the, uh, the refusal of the call, um, uh, you can't fight fate, uh, or maybe the call knows where you live, and also resigned to the call. Uh, and and I think Christ would probably fall. I mean, there, there are examples. There is an example of him, if you will, refusing the call in, the, um, in his journey in Gethsemane in this way. Um, and going a little further, he fell on his faith and, face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If there ever was a refusal of the call... Um, if Christ ever exemplified a refusal of the call, um, it was definitely in Gethsemane, uh, because the real the real pain, the real suffering was about to come, and Christ knew uh, what was coming. It demonstrated his humility in here. And if there's any step of the hero's journey journey that I'm not willing to to die on, it's the refusal of the call. Christ knew, you know, obviously the whole time what his ministry was was going to become, um, and who he was going to be. Um, so again, a refusal of the call is probably the only one I will concede is not exactly in line with Christ's, um, uh, Christ's life. Number four, meeting with the mentor. Sometimes it's not a bad idea to refuse a call until you've had time to prepare for the zone unknown that lies ahead. That preparation might be done with the help of the wise, protecting protective figure of the mentor whose many services to the hero include protecting, guiding, teaching, testing, training, and providing magical gifts. Meeting with the mentor is the stage of the hero's journey in which the hero gains the supplies, knowledge, and confidence needed to overcome fear and commence the adventure. I would argue that this happened in the wilderness. Many many of these stages of, of the hero, um, many of them come, come are exemplified in Christ's going out on his 40-day fast in the wilderness. Um, again, when it says here, um, uh, protecting, guiding, teaching, testing, training, and providing magical gifts, meeting with the mentor is the stage of the hero's journey in which the hero gains the supplies, knowledge, and confidence needed to overcome fear and commence the adventure. I would argue if, any, if that play happened at any place, it would be in the uh, wilderness as he's communing with the Lord and praying and preparing for his journey, receiving... Um, I would argue receiving spiritual blessing while denying physical blessing. I mean that that is the purpose of fasting is to have your have your prayers heard because Christ was about to start his his ministry and going out to prepare in the wilderness for forty days and forty nights is in my mind definitely meeting with the mentor, you know, getting ready, getting the supplies needed for what he's about to undergo. Number five is crossing the first threshold. Now the hero stands at the very threshold of the world of adventure, the special world of Act Two. The call has been heard, doubts and fears have been expressed and allayed, and all due preparations have been made. But the real movement, the most critical action of Act One, still remains. Crossing the first threshold is an act of the will in which the hero commits wholeheartedly to the adventure. And uh, this this is exemplified perfectly in um, the Bible. It says the tempter came to him and said. Uh, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle, pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command the angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Again, the, the description of the crossing the first threshold, um, it says, The most critical action of Act 1 still remains. Crossing the first threshold is an act of the will in which the hero commits wholeheartedly to the adventure. This is, again, the, the, the first test of Christ. Uh, when he was at one of his weakest states, the devil comes to him and, and tries to tempt him. And Christ here demonstrates that the first threshold has indeed been crossed. Number six is tests, allies, and enemies. Um, for number six, um, you know, this is, uh, a demonstra- uh, this is talking about, you know, as the hero begins uh, his journey, um, tests, allies, and enemies make themselves known to him, and we learn what kind of person the hero is. So the first test comes when Christ is at the wedding in Cana, and the Bible says on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his, with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. As the story continues on, Christ turns the water into wine. People come up to him and say, or to the, to the wedding host and say, well, usually you put the best wine out first and you leave the bad wine for last. But it looks like you put out the bad wine first and left the best wine for last. And this was the first, uh, the Bible records this moment as the first of Christ's miracles. Again, Christ passes the first test with flying colors. And people start to believe in his, his supernatural abilities to, to perform miracles. Now, as far as allies, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. There are many people who came to Christ secretly, and many people came to Christ openly uh, as he was, uh, you know, started to establish his allies. Again, the Bible says, And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And then all, later the Bible says, he said to him, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is something I believe all the disciples, with the exception of Judas, believed. Um... Uh, you know, Christ, again, establishing his, his allies, his disciples, his students, and enemies. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take, child, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Um, right from the beginning of Christ's life, he's, he's had enemies. Herod tried to kill him. The Pharisees uh, went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And also the people shouted all the more, crucified, crucify him. Again, Christ probably had more enemies than he had allies, especially during his crucifixion. We find out who these are um, as you read through the Gospels. Number seven is called the approach to the inmost cave. Um, Vogler writes, heroes having, uh, maybe adjust, uh, having maybe adjusted to the special world now go on to seek its heart. They pass into the intermediate region between the border and the very center of the hero's journey. On the way, they find another mysterious zone with its own threshold guardians, agendas, and tests. 
This is the approach to the inmost cave, where they will soon encounter supreme wonder and terror. It's time to make final preparation for the central ordeal of the adventure. Heroes at this point are like mountaineers who have raised themselves to a base camp by the labors of testing and are about to make the final assault on the highest peak. This is demonstrated in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane as Christ um, took, him, uh, took himself and his disciples to the garden. The Bible says uh, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. Again, if you're describing something, it's time to make the final preparation for the central ordeal of the adventure, as Volga writes. This is demonstrated perfectly um, uh, as, as the approach to the inmost cave in the Garden of the Gethsemane, as Christ um, starts sweating blood, uh, getting ready and preparing himself for what was about to come, the full, and, um, the full unfaced wrath of God upon his person for the sins of the world. Number eight is called the ordeal. Now the hero stands in the deepest chamber of the inmost cave, facing the greatest challenge in the most fearsome opponent yet. Um, this is a quote from Vogler. Seeker, enter the inmost cave and look for that which will restore life. The ways grow narrow and dark. You must go alone on hands and knees, and you feel the earth pressed close around you. You can hardly breathe. Suddenly you come out into the deepest chamber and find yourself face to face with a towering figure, a menacing shadow composed of all your doubts and fears and well-armed to defend a treasure. Here, in this moment, is the chance to win all or die. No matter what you what you come for, it's death now that stares back at you. Whatever the outcome of the battle, you're about to taste death, and it will change you. I mean, th- this this is almost a perfect description of what Christ had to endure. I mean, I mean, crawling on your hands and knees, you know, him him taking the cross, you know, and staring death in the face, and 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 ultimately conquering death. You know, it's it's like this person who wrote this book looked at Christ and based all of the characteristics on him before we even knew anything else about the Western culture, about about any other hero. It's unbelievable. He concludes by saying the simplest secret of the ordeal is this. Heroes must die so that they can be reborn. Again, <laughs> this is Christ to a T. Number nine is called the reward. With the crisis of the ordeal of the ordeal past, Heroes now experience the consequences of surviving death. With the dragon that dwelt in the inmost cave slain or vanquished, they seize the sword of victory and lay claim to the reward. Triumph may be fleeting, but for now, they savor its pleasures. Now, this is the part of the, uh, of the 12 steps of the hero's journey, uh, or the 12 stages of the hero's journey, where we start to get into, okay, what, what happens chronologically? Because the last three steps are uh, the reward, excuse me, the last four steps are the reward, the road back, the resurrection, and the return with the elixir. Now, some heroes follow this chronologically. Christ did all of these things, but he did not do it necessarily in chronological order according to um, what the author wrote down here. So as far as the reward goes, um, in the Bible, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Reward. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the reward of Christ. All authority has been given to me. 
Um, you know, and also not to mention being seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made a footstool for him, as is, as read in uh, Psalms. Number 10 is the road back. Once the lessons and rewards of the great ordeal have been celebrated and absorbed, heroes face a choice, whether to remain in the special world or begin the journey home to the ordinary world. Although the special world may have its charms, few heroes elected to stay. Most uh, take the road back, returning to the starting point, or continuing on the journey to a totally new locale or ultimate destination. I believe Christ does both. You could already does both. He goes on to a new destination, um, um, where it says a totally new uh, no, look, locale or ultimate destination by see, being seated at the right hand of the Father. But he also goes back to the starting point of where he came from, from heaven. He, he starts from heaven, he goes back to heaven. So he kind of he does both here uh, as far as the road back. Number 11 is the resurrection. Of course, um, now comes one of the trickiest and most challenging passages for the hero and the writer. For a story to feel complete, the audience needs to experience an additional moment of death and rebirth, similar to the supreme ordeal, but subtly different. This is the climax, the last and most dangerous meeting with death. Heroes have to undergo final purging and purification before re-entering the ordinary world. Once more, they must change. The trick for writers is to show the change in the characters by behavior or appearance rather than just by talking about it. Writers must find ways to demonstrate that their heroes have been through a resurrection. Again, this is like, it's, it sounds like word for word what Christ had to endure, what he had to go through for us. You know, when you look at the hero's journey, um, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, this is just like movies. You know, Christ's life is laid out, uh, our movies are based on, the, the, chrono, the chronology is based on Christ's life. A lot of the uh, movies that we watch, there's a lot of general time in the middle, not very specific, but the closer you get to the end, the more specific on the details you get. Uh, and this is demonstrated in the Gospels. I mean, they, they, they gave a lot of general stuff in the beginning, and then they start to get more and more specific as, as time goes on. Maybe possibly with the exception of John, who was pr- pretty much detailed in almost everything he did. Um, again, for the resurrection, um, the r- trick for writers is to show us the change in the characters by behavior or appearance rather than just by talking about it. Writers must find ways to demonstrate that their heroes have been through a resurrection. Now, again, I mean, this is... I can't believe that the author doesn't even reference Christ uh, as far as uh, I understand in, in this book because this is, this is you know, exactly what Christ had to endure for us. This is exactly what he did. Uh, again, it says, uh, the audience needs to experience an additional moment of death and rebirth similar to the supreme ordeal but subtly different. Now, the supreme ordeal... Uh, for a lot of Christians, thinks think they think that Christ's physical torture and suffering on the cross was the supreme ordeal. I'm here to argue that that was not the supreme ordeal. Um, Christ suffered for three hours on the cross when he was facing the open wrath of God, when the sun was block, block, uh, blocked out and there was earthquakes and tremoring. I mean, it was Christ, it was God uh, emptying his wrath upon his, his son. Um, that was the that was the true um, that was the true ordeal. There was a there was a, a a physical ordeal, but the spiritual ordeal was way worse. And uh, you know, obviously, you know, any most Americans know that Christ was uh, dead for three days and resurrected on the third day. So again, I don't need to spoil that for you. But yeah, if you're talking about a resurrection. I mean, there's no other character in history that perfectly demonstrates a resurrection other than Christ himself. Number 12 is return with the elixir. 
having survived all the ordeals, having lived through death, heroes return to their starting place. Are we talking about Christ or are we talking about a hero in general? Um, uh, heroes return to their starting place, go home or continue their journey, but they will always proceed with the sense that they are commencing a new life, one that will be forever different because of the road just traveled. If they are true heroes, they return with the elixir from the special world, bringing something to share with others or something with the power to heal a wounded land. Again, when Christ comes back, um, he does bring the elixir, uh, he does return with the elixir, uh, uh, bringing something to share with others or something with the power to heal a wounded land. <laughs> Again, I, I have to refer back to the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore now and uh, preach the gospel and I'm with you always. Is that not the return that with the elixir? Christ dies and comes back to make the world a better place. It is Christ to a T. The 12 stages of a journey whether we realize it or not, are celebrated in Western society because our society is based so much on Christ and we just have no idea how much of it is based on Christ. My name is Luke with Brotherhood of the Silver Screen. I look forward to being your host along with Dove and Joey. And I hope you guys are entertained and encouraged by our discussions about movies. And I will see you folks next week. Thanks for listening.